This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. We hear a lot about rural America today, its deterioration, its losses, and even its sense of despair. And we therefore succumb to a one-dimensional preconception and oversimplified silhouettes. Our conversation today with Gigi Georges, the author of a new book, Down East, Five Main Girls and the Unseen Story of Rural America, changes that perspective. By focusing on rural Maine, she enhances our understanding of both the challenges and the virtues in rural America today. Gigi might not seem like the woman most naturally suited to tell this story, a Brooklyn girl from an immigrant family, but in fact, she is perfectly suited to the task. Not only are there surprising similarities between her life and family and Down East Maine, there is also her work in the Clinton White House and as program director at Harvard's Kennedy School schools, innovation strategies, initiatives, and even further by her education culminating in her PhD in public service. All of this is of course great, but what most qualifies her and permeates the story of these five girls caught between tradition and transformation is Gigi's heart. Welcome Gigi to Just the Right Book. Thank you, Roxanne. It's great to be here with you, and thank you for that generous introduction. Oh, it's my it's my pleasure. So let's start with the easy question. Um, how did a Brooklyn girl end up mes- mesmerized by Down East Maine? Well, it was a bit of a journey. So as you note, I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, not Brooklyn, Maine. And I um, grew up in this big Greek immigrant family, this boisterous family who was Pretty surprised when I ended up at the White House some years later. Uh, I worked in I worked in urban issues, urban education, broader urban policy issues for many many years um, until uh, my husband and I about 15 years ago made the decision to move to Northern New England. And as we started to settle in and raise our now nine year old daughter there, I started to look around. And I became more and more attuned to what I was seeing in rural places around me and how it differed from that downbeat narrative that we keep hearing Mm. over and over again uh, of hopelessness and despair in rural America. And I I said, you know, I've just got to take a closer look at this. So I dug deeper. Mm. And one of the things I was, Well, let let me start with this. Describe Down East Washington County for us. So Down East Washington County is about an hour north of the well-known Bar Harbor Acadia area. It is, um, however, a world away. Uh, So I often say that while Acadia draws busloads and billionaires, um, some 3 million visitors each summer, for example, Down East Washington County is extremely geographically isolated. It is ripped with, it has tremendous challenges uh, and um, economically in terms of substance abuse, um, there are um, very many difficulties. The work is hard, the life is hard. um, So it is very, very far from Bar Harbor and Acadia in the summer. And so uh, it is also, many people don't know that Maine is the most rural state in the nation. Um, So it is about the most rural place in the most rural state in the nation. Um, So it is, is, as I said, quite isolated. If you're like me and have been thinking about losing the same five pounds or 10 pounds or 15 pounds over and over again and have tried diets, that don't work out, you might want to do what I ended up doing is I stumbled on Noom.com. And what I liked about Noom is it didn't just talk about what you 
ate, but how you eat or what your goals are and helps you build new habits. And I like it since it doesn't take a lot of time. It's personalized. It seems to understand that you need some food knowledge and some flexibility in order to meet your goals. So I loved their, you know, I guess I would call it a cognitive behavioral approach. And I really would encourage you to try it because based on what I read, 80% of people who start this program finish it and over 60% have stuck with it after a year. So that, that sounds pretty appealing. So I encourage you uh, to try it. And all you need to do to sign up for a trial is go to noom.com, N-O-O-M.com slash just the right book. So I'm excited about it and I hope you sign up and get excited about it as well. Go to noom.com, N-O-O-M.com slash just the right book. When, when you started the project, did you intend to just cover girls or did you start by thinking you would tell the story through the lens of boys and girls or girls? Right. So that's a great question, Roxanne. Originally, this was very much um, an iterative process. So originally, I knew that I wanted to tell some story. Um, and I was interested in high school students, high school age students. Uh, but beyond that, I really didn't have a, a particular focus on girls. I uh, made my way actually to Down East Washington County through uh, the direction of a dear friend of both my husband and mine in Bar Harbor, uh, uh, Reverend Scott Planting, who for many, many years ran this nonprofit called the Maine Seacoast Mission that is really widely known and renowned in Maine uh, for working with young people in Washington County mm. uh, and on the Maine islands. So he said to me, I sat down with him, uh, you know, I'll never forget this conversation. I sat down with him now about five or more years ago when I first started this journey. And I said, I'm really interested in young people in, in rural places. And I'd like to spend some time with high school students because I know so much about urban education, but I really don't know and understand what these kids are facing. And he said, go up the road an hour away and what you will find there may surprise you. And he was right. I sat down thanks to him with the school principal and the school superintendent initially, and they were very open. And they said, come, if you wanna meet with these kids, just we'll set up some focus groups uh, informally. I sat down with young men and young women. And what I found Roxanne, as I had these conversations with these young people was that the young women in the groups were excelling and in many cases surpassing the boys around them in every area, in mm -hmm. academics, in athletics, in leadership inside and outside of the school. And I thought there's something interesting going on here. There's a story that should be told. And as I dug deeper, what I realized was not only was this an interesting data point about these young women excelling, but in all of the stories of rural America that we are reading and hearing about in the last few years, almost nowhere do we hear those stories told through the voice and perspective of contemporary young women. Mm. And I wanted their voices to be heard. Yeah, and, and I'll come back to the, to the girls, but I was, there was a quote uh, by um, Lori Donovan, who, well, Laura Donovan, who uh, is or was the principal of Narragansett High. And she had a, you had a couple of paragraphs in the book where she talks about the, the, profile and expectations or lack of expectations and sort of downward spiral of the boys. Yeah. So in the process of, 
of doing your research, did you come to some observation or is that the next book about why the boys are not thriving in the way that the girls might be? Yeah, so that is something that really struck me. Uh, and this principal, Lauren Donovan of, of Narragwegas High, she, we had a number of talks around this. And I, I, after speaking with her and after looking at this and observing, observing this phenomenon, I started asking everyone that I've interviewed about this. Why do you think this is happening? Mm. Uh, and I ended up talking to over a hundred uh, members of the community beyond the inner circle of these girls over the course of the four years that I reported this. And no one really had the answer, but I think it is a tremendously important um, question to keep digging at, not just in Down East Washington County, but in, in other places, because yeah. I think there is, there is something to think about in Lauren's observation. And that is, her observation was, we are working very hard and rightly so to lift these girls up and to give them the support they need. And we are trying to do so with the boys as well. But I think in the process, we may be inadvertently sending these boys signals that they are lesser than. And it's a really, I, it was wow. sort of a, thought-provoking. I don't know. I don't know if that's true, but it was certainly worthy of thought, and I think it's worthy of exploration at the very least. I mean, I, I, to me, it's so critical, and as you were talking, which seems disconnected, but it reminded me of an article a number of years ago that was in the New York Times Magazine about uh, people who lost their job in the 2008-2009 meltdown. And what happened was, what the article talked about is the men who were middle managers were unwilling to take different jobs, unwilling to go through retraining. And in order to support their families, the women who had generally been homemakers were willing to take starting jobs as anything and then work their way up to middle management. And I wonder, A, I'm very curious about this issue because I think it's key for our country to figure it out. But I wonder if there's some analogy between that and what you run into with teenage boys in at least down East Maine. Yes, I think that's a really, really good observation. That's, and, and that may well be the case. Although, you know, I do wanna add sort of as a corollary to that, one positive thing around the, the young men and the older men, and frankly, the broader community of men in Down East Washington County. And that is that they are incredibly supportive yeah. of their young and older women. And that, that was just remarkable. Uh, you know, just one anecdote. The, 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 the girls basketball team at Narragwegas High, um, which ends up going Im improbably to the state championship right. in 2016. I mean, it is this, you know, it is not exactly a class A team, um, but they just have this grit and, and they work together and they have a great coach. And it's one of those wonderful stories. They make it to the championship and they win. Those girls, their fathers and brothers and uncles, they would get off that lobster fishing boat because lobster fishing is the predominant um, uh, industry there. They would get off that lobster boat. They would run home to shower. They would show up in their, you know, these burly guys, they'd show up in their plaid jackets, you know, and be right there at every single game to root these girls on. And I thought that was just such a, such a great sort of metaphor for the way in which these men 
um, and these even the and even the young men, right? Even the peers, they are there supporting these girls, mm -hmm. uh, even if they feel somehow left behind, right? Um, particularly for the young men, it's interesting. So let's get back to the girls. Yes. Um, so you held these focus groups. How did you decide? How did you think about which girls you would make the substance of the book? Yeah, it was a, it was a difficult decision initially because there were quite a few young women that I could have gone to. I, I now joke and say I, I look back and I and I joke and say you know these these young women were the only ones who would allow me to follow them around for four years. But <laughs> they you know I'm sure they got tired of it. But uh, they. Um, as I started to talk to, um, sort of narrow down the group, uh, and I knew I didn't want to have more than five girls um, because I wanted to be able to tell their stories as deeply as possible. I came upon these five as each in their own right, um, and then together exemplifying the broader story of Down East Washington County. So that each strand represents one facet, although they do overlap. Um, and I thought that taken together, they, they created that picture that I was hoping to create as I got to know them. And at, at some point after they agreed to do this, did you find them getting either squeamish or um, worried about being exposed that way or exposing their families? No, I was very fortunate. Um, these young women, they did not at all show that squeamishness. And I do think that it, it was in part, it is in part a great credit to them that they were willing to uh, mm -hmm. open themselves up. Very brave. Very brave. I, I, I was about, you took the word right out of my mouth. I thought it was very, very courageous of them. And, and the other thing that was, I thought just so, so wonderful was to see that sense of agency that these mm. young women have, that self-awareness and composure that I am quite sure I didn't have at the age of 17 or 18. Yeah. Yeah. And I, um, it was quite something and they did not show squeamishness. They were um, right there with me the whole way. I'm so grateful for that. Yeah, and it, it, you know, I don't wanna spoil the arc of the story but I would love our audience to have a sense. I mean, I fell in love with the girls. I mean, to a, to a girl um, and for obviously different reasons. It, you know, even right before uh, we started this recording, it occurred to me like, why didn't we have the girls on um, yeah. and yeah. and talk to them because it'd be interesting to hear their perspective. But give us a, a tiny bit about each of the girls so the audience has a sense of the um, the nature of each of them. Sure, I will try not to give away too yeah, much. Don't give but, anything away. Yes, but uh, the five girls are Willow, the first, comes from a very, very challenged, um, difficult childhood. Father uh, is a substance abuser, opioid addiction um, that turns to heroin addiction, uh, physical abuse in the home. Uh, Willow moves seven times before she is eight. And at one point living with her grandmother, her grandmother is um, imprisoned uh, uh, for a felony, uh, tried and convicted and imprisoned. So tough life, tough times. I will say this about Willow uh, without giving too much away. Um, she is a very, very strong and very resilient young woman. She mm -hmm. is not a victim. Uh, and um, she goes on to, with the help of a tremendous mentor in the school, uh, she goes on to find her path, um, although there are many, many ups and downs. Uh, second is Josie, who could not be further from Willow in her story. Josie is class valedictorian, second ever in Narragwagas history to go to Yale, uh, the first being her sister. Um, so it's quite <laughs> some family. And um, she is not from a multi-generational family. 
Many, many Downeasters are multi-generational, which we see a lot in rural America, in other places, but she is not. Um, and she uh, makes her way to Yale, um, but she has her own challenges, her own struggles, um, and her finds her own, um, her own set of um, discoveries around having one foot down east and one foot in New Haven, two very different worlds. Uh, the third is Vivian, um, a extraordinarily talented writer, um, soulful, extremely bright, but she is the rebel in the group. Uh, comes from an established family as things go down east um, uh, and really struggles with uh, the, 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 the strictures that are placed on her. Um, in, in home life, in family life, in church life. Uh, the fourth is McKenna. McKenna is a spitfire. She is a lobster fishing boat captain who has been on a lobster boat working since the age of eight at her father's knee. And um, by the time she's 17, she is captaining her own boat. And she is also a tremendous softball player and she will take no gruff from the boys around her. She is right there with them every minute and a lot of fun. Uh, and then finally, Audrey, um, who is uh, a wonderfully soft, quiet leader in the high school and in the community who leads the basketball team to the state championship in 2016 and then gets this coveted scholarship to Bates College uh, where she has um, a moment where she comes to reckon with her very, very strong ties to Down East and works through those. I won't give away what her decision yeah. is or where she goes. No, we won't say. Yes. Not that this is a mystery book. No, but they do find their way through some interesting paths. And, yeah. um, and in many ways, you know, for me, sort of living it with them, it was an emotional roller coaster at times, um, yeah. but in a very, very good way. And the, the other thing that I was struck by are the, the mentors. And share with us, you know, the, the names I wrote down were Britt, Manny, uh, Anne-Marie, Lauren, and Molly, and particularly Molly and the tree program that she ran and the program that Manny started. But tell us a little bit about a couple of them, because what we're going to go on to have a conversation about is what are the key ingredients you think to anyone from these communities managing to navigate their way to stability or even success, however it's defined? But let's start with some of these mentors. Sure, and I could take any one of them and I think each of their stories is so powerful in her own way. Uh, but I'll, I'll maybe take the first and the last that you mentioned um, and that is that is Britt Francis, um, lovingly known as Franny by uh, the students around her, is the art teacher. And she is so interesting in that she is one who comes from away, as they say in Maine. She finds, she's born and raised in Long Island, New York. She finds her way, makes her way across the country to California, and then somehow finds her way down east uh, as an art teacher. And she is um, there for these kids in every respect. She gives them in the art room, she opens their world to this wide view through the art, through the artists, through the practice of art and photography. And she takes these girls in and becomes in many ways a second mother to them mm. uh, and guides them and also gives them the sense that yes, if they want to go off to other places, if they feel that is where their roads should, road should go, then go for it. But she also gives them a sense that it is okay to want to remain down east, that it is okay mm -hmm. to want to stay and build and to, to offer what they have to this community and helps them think many of those things through. So um, Franny is just a wonderful person who is always there for these girls, whether it is 1 a.m. to pick them up because they've had a little too much to drink yeah. or it is in the art room to help guide them through their college admissions applications. Yeah. Um, uh, 
Molly is really interesting and she comes in very late in the story, but she represents something that is very important, I think. One is that she is a hometown girl, multi, multi-generational, who goes off to Colby College and comes back and is 100% committed to her community. And she starts this program, a homegrown nonprofit from the ground up, uh, which I think is critical, uh, called TREE. And it is about helping kids with trauma find the supports they need in the school and recognize what they need to do to find their way and to recognize, to have the community recognize that trauma is real for these kids. Uh, and that, that all that we know about the brain research, right, that has finally found its way to Down East Washington County, she applies in the school and she is helping these young children at the elementary school level. She is helping them by offering and providing some really great supports for these kids to work through the trauma that many kids there have because there are kids there who live in homes that don't have running water. There are kids who, where both parents are addicted to opioids. Uh, there are kids who are really struggling and she is there as a safety net, but more than that, she draws the community in. And that strength mm. of community is something that is so, so important and powerful throughout these five girl stories. Gigi, one of the things that it made me think about, there's a program that I'm sure, uh, or an assessment tool that I'm sure you're familiar with called ACEs, which, yes. which aggregates the, uh, a set of circumstances from, a, from abuse to a parent being in prison to um, food inadequacies, et cetera. And based on those, um, that rating, so to speak, assesses the level of challenges that they'll have in getting through school or from point A to point B. And there have been a number of programs across the country. Uh, Walla Walla Washington has one. There's, there's any number of them that do things like the program that Molly is doing. You know, given your background in public policy, are you surprised that there isn't some wholesale effort at putting these kinds of programs into these schools? Because, you know, from what I've read, some of these kids only need one person. One person, like I think about a conversation that Vivian had with, uh, I think, Franny, yeah. um, where she was embarrassed to disclose what was going on for her to anyone but this one person. Right. So, you know, from putting on your public policy hat, why don't you think there's more national effort for putting these programs in place? Now that's a really good question. And, and, and it's, of course, you, your discussion of ACEs is such a great example of that. And of course, Molly brings the whole ACEs um, terminology and the score and the, and the process to these Down East Washington County schools. Um, through tree and it is like a light bulb goes off, right? Yeah. But as you say, right, why wasn't it there before, right? It, yeah. it is possible, right? It is possibly a decade later, right? Than, than many urban school districts have been in implementing ACEs-based programs. And I do think that it has a great deal to do with the geographic isolation of places like Down East Washington County. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, so few outsiders come in and really make themselves a part of this community in meaningful ways. And those who do show, those who do like Franny, right? Like Anne-Marie Whalen, the English teacher who comes and brings what she has, right? Like 
um, like Molly who leaves and brings back. Um, those have those folks have such impact standing side by side with multi-generational folks who, who really care, but need more tools. Um, I do think it has a lot to do with geographic isolation. I do think that there are so many places that are unseen, right? Yeah. Um, I talk about the, I talk about down East Washington County at one point in the book as the Valley of the Overlooked. And it is. And so it was one of the reasons I felt it was so important. And I felt such urgency about telling this story mm -hmm. because I think the more of us that uncover a slightly different narrative about places like down East Washington County, the more outsiders will see that there is reason for hope and optimism, there is strength there, and that with a little bit of extra help, right, places like this can be even stronger. Yeah, and you know, I wonder, uh, you know, I agree with you about uh, the geographic isolation, but you can't help but read down east and Think about the uh, similarities and the difference, differences between urban poverty and challenges and rural poverty and challenges. Did you come away thinking about what, what, what would you say is the same and what would you say is uniquely different? You know, I think there are a lot of similarities. I, I really do. Um, I do think that one of the ways in which things are different there is that, uh, and it may actually tie back to your previous question as I think about it, um, is that I think that um, these communities in many ways because they are not part of a larger, right, cosmos, right? They're not part of this cosmopolitan. So you think of New York City or Chicago and you have just terrible poverty, but right outside them, right? There are others and there are resources. And, you know, so they, these folks really, really have learned over generations, right? Generational poverty to fend for themselves, right? And so they have developed a culture of tremendous resilience that is born out of necessity. Mm -hmm. um, and so while they continue to deal with very many of the same challenges as in urban poverty, they are in some ways dealing with them in different ways. And I won't, I, I do want to say one thing, and is this is not a criticism of downeasters or 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 folks in rural places that are very tight knit, like down east Washington County, but they are also skeptical of outside organizations parachuting in. Yeah, uh, because I think, and they, I refer to this at one point in the story of of Manny, one of the other mentors, and the program that is run by the Seacoast Mission. A lot of these folks look at outside organizations that come in, particularly nationally based, and they say, oh, I have seen this before. And people come in and they mean well, but they stick around for six months or maybe a year and yeah. then they're gone. they're gone. So there is a really big skepticism about organizations coming in. And that's one of the reasons um, Roxanne, that I, when I think about, you know, how, what are the, you know, what are the things that could be done more, or what are the policy um, pieces that could be put more into a place? I really believe that supporting these um, efforts, particularly nonprofit efforts from the ground up, finding the Mollies, and there are many who want to either yeah. return or stay, and have the wherewithal, but may need just that little extra, extra resources, extra training, extra support to grow from the ground up, that that is uh, an incredibly important piece of the puzzle. Yeah, you know, what I've watched over the years when in, in nonprofit work that I've done related to education or literacy, um, 
is that a lot of programs that are the most successful are spearheaded by a person or a small team of people who have the fortitude and the commitment to do it, but then it's not scalable. Right. And right. It's, it, to me, it's a frustration that it's gonna depend on, you know, the flower among the weeds to make the effort to reinvent something. Right, right. And it is a very, of course you hit the nail on the head in terms of scaling up, that that always ends up being, right? That point where things get tough. Mm -hmm. And I think it is a really big, it is a really big issue. And so there really is only so far that you can go with some of this and why some other of these other pieces are just equally as important. Uh, I do think that, for example, um, in the policy world, I talk about the tremendous fight that the residents of Down East Washington County made to have a vocational center for technical education put in their community. It was one of my questions I was gonna ask about. And that is one of the other pieces, right? There are many pieces to this. These parents who, they, they are working day and night, right? They, they're, there's not a lot of leisure time. They showed up to these community meetings that I stood in on, set in on, and they overflowed the rafters in support of technical education for their kids because they want options for their kids. And those jobs are real jobs. And so yeah. I found that fascinating and, and, and really um, a, a really positive piece of the story. Well, I see here in Connecticut uh, where there's a, you know, obviously a big push to um, go to four-year colleges and Yet we have one of the largest achievement gaps educationally here and one of the largest wealth uh, disparities in, in the country. And, you know, the argument against vocational schools are that you're lowering the expectations of a group of students and lowering what they think they can do. I personally am a proponent of vocational schools because I think it gives options and a number of those jobs pay far better than some of the kids coming out of college who can't find jobs. You know, they're, they're great careers and, 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 you know, I know that there's a lot of uh, lost jobs in that area, but there's also a, a lot of those jobs and some of them are IT jobs. They're not necessarily, some are, you know, machine work and some, some are IT work that companies are understanding. They don't need kids with a college degree. So, you know, I'm always hopeful that vocational schools will take on a much wider kind of enthusiasm. Right, and, and it is not to say that for some of these students going to a four-year college is the right decision. But, right. For, many, but for many, many of these families, look, these kids, by and large, they want to stay down east. Yeah. Right? Interesting, what, right? It's right. Exactly. Again, this runs counter to that narrative. We keep hearing this narrative of, oh, what is the story? What is the great story about rural Americans? It's about that one in a million who escapes, right? Has to escape in order to succeed. Well, most of these kids... And I spoke to so many of them, and this was true of, of literally four out of five of the girls. And even in the fifth, there was a, a, a link back to down east, and that's Josie. Most of these kids want to stay. They want to stay, and they want to build in within their communities. And these vocational training um, institutes, like the one that has now been placed in down east, they can go and they can get a degree in boat mechanics. Um, there are many jobs around the lobster fishing industry that pay well mm -hmm. uh, and that are good jobs and it allows them to remain where they wanna remain and they don't view it as second best. I can tell you that at yeah. all. So yeah. it's interesting to see that. Um, 
So having, um, you know, I, I come to down East Maine via the Lower East Side in Washington Heights, but n not that far from Brooklyn. Um, and the thing that I've learned having a home up there for 25 years is even being there 25 years, I'm still an outsider. So to what extent did you worry telling this story that you're, you know, sort of coming in on this would either seem patronizing or voyeuristic or an outsider has no business getting involved in people's lives in Down East Maine. I'll tell you, Roxanne, when I first started this, I was tremendously worried about being that outsider. I was worried about how I would be received. And I was concerned about whether I could tell this story, even though I didn't quite yet know what the story would be. Right. But I will tell you this, the time from the first couple of months when the school superintendent and the school principal and then a number of the teachers to begin with sat down with me and spent and I spent time with them and then I started to spend time with these young women I I overcame that but not because of anything within me mm -hmm. they gave me that gift yeah they gave me their trust and they said to me, we want you to do this. And we want you to tell this story, even though they didn't know where it was going. And mm -hmm. I think that one of the things that was also, um, was really great about doing this with them was that we ended up in many ways, the, the five young women and I, just taking this journey together. And my biggest role, especially in that first year or so, was to just get out of the way and let them tell their stories. And I think that helped us build that trust. Yeah, and to, and, and you know, you, you understand that in reading the book. I mean, what I said in the introduction was the most striking to me, that it was clear your affection and respect for the girls just permeated your telling the story. It did not ever smack, which it can, you know, these kind of stories can smack of a kind of a judgment. But did you ever worry, you know, you read about journalists who, who um, do stories like this, that they become too entwined in the story to really step back and have a independent perspective? I mean, did the girls start to ask you for favors or rely on you for advice in a way that began to worry you? No, you know, they never did. They never yeah. did. They understood. They understood. And I, you know, it goes back to something I said earlier about just, just how um, incredibly self-aware and mature and, um, and sort of just, really self-possessed um, they were throughout this process. They understood from the very beginning what the relationship was. Right. And I respected that with them and they respected it with me. And I would say in the process of the four years, we have become friends. Mm -hmm but we maintained throughout the reporting enough of that recognition that we had a job to do. Yeah. Um, and they were very, very much participants right there from the beginning in that. So, so let me ask you these two uh, questions in, in closing. Um, did you come away with what you thought were common denominators of these girls or people in general that managed to navigate through the, the, the challenges? Yes, I did. Um, you didn't I think share them with us? <laughs> yes, I think there are two, I think there are two sets of, of common denominators. Uh, one set is something that comes from within them. And then relatedly, the other set is 
comes from the, the um, influences that come from outside, right? So from within, and of course they are intertwined, um, but from within, these young women all um, were raised with a tremendous work ethic mm. and a tremendous, so they all worked from a very young age. Hard, um, they worked hard. Hard work, right? Blueberry raking, lobster fishing, working down at the wharf, getting bait, right? To sell, clamming. Um, so they worked hard. They, ex they were expected to work hard from a very young age, but they were also expected by their family to, by their families, even in the case of Willow, by her mother, to go to school and do their work at school and take it seriously because mm -hmm. they wanted more for their kids, right? So they were incul inculcated in that way from a very, very young age. And so I think they grew resilient from a very, very young age. And that is where that comes from. Uh, and so they, so they evolved from there. Uh, the second piece is that the community around them, whether or not they had stable families, was there for them in the form of teachers as mentors, in the form of church, in the form of broader community, nonprofit or otherwise, informal or informal, these communities are there for their kids and for each other. And that, that strength is what struck me so much, as I say at one point in the book, that even though places like Down East Washington County are so geographically isolated, they are anything but isolated in their sense. Within their, yeah. you know, it, we talked briefly about the difference between urban and uh, rural poverty, but one of the things that I took away and I've experienced in Castine, Maine, is that there is a tighter, there's the, there's the possibility of a wider community for supporting each other than I think might exist in urban environments. I think it has existed in urban environments through churches um, but I wonder, you know, if you're a family in a high rise building in Queens or the Bronx, is there quite the same sense of uh, community? Uh, that, that exact thought struck me over and over again. And, and particularly as we went through this experience of the COVID lockdowns, right? right even more so, right? And, and it, it is very striking. And I think you are right that in urban settings, there are outlets for community building. Um, and I do think particularly of churches and particularly of the African-American church, right? I, I thought of parallels there, um, but in churches and community centers and senior centers, but you know, we go home in these urban settings to these high rises and we don't know our neighbors. And there yeah. is much more, we are much more prone to that social isolation. You almost can't escape, right? Your neighbors in places like Down East Washington County. And, you know, there, are, there can be times when they complain about it, but ultimately, ultimately in challenged areas, that is a really good thing because it is a tremendous safety net for them. Yeah. So Gigi, at the end of this process, coming into it with a question of what that's like and what's that that's going on. Did you come away with a sense of optimism about not just down East Washington County, but did you come away with a sense of optimism that rural America can navigate its way through what seemed like impossible times. I mean, what's this, isn't the statistic of the number of kids in poverty in the United States something like 30%? Yes. I mean, some yeah. staggering number. So if you do have a sense of optimism, what's informing that? Yeah, I, I came away with, uh, I think, 
a clear-eyed recognition that these challenges are tremendous in places like down East Washington County, other parts of rural America, but I did come away optimistic and I did so because I saw that these communities really do pull together and that they are there for each other. And I also felt that if we can have more stories like the stories of these young women told in that broader narrative of rural America, if, if these young kids can hear those stories reflected back at them, that that will also help them, mm -hmm. right? Because they are optimistic. That's why I'm optimistic. They are optimistic about their future and their hometown's future, but they need to see that others see them as better than we're giving them. Yeah. And I wonder if that's part of what becomes a distinction between the boys and the girls is the boys must be, you know, there's this, there's this loop of information that they're failing in rural America, that the boys are failing, you know, not hearing about the girls is not hearing about them to the good or to the bad, right. but you are hearing about the boys. And so to your point about changing the loop. If the, if the loop is telling the boys that they're doomed, then they'll be doomed, yes. right? And that's gonna, that's gonna feed their sense of it's, of it's hopeless. So, I mean, I hope these stories get out. I hope the role that you've played in politics and public policy will fuel you to take all of this in create even bigger change, Gigi, because, I mean, it, these kind of stories are encouraging because they remind us that change, in fact, um, can happen. So I, I really want to thank you. Uh, we've been talking with Gigi Georges, the author of Down East, Five Main Girls and the Unseen Story of Rural America. And I, you, I, I look forward to you having these girls be part of uh, the conversation because I can imagine how they will be incredible role models for other people. Yes, and I, I look forward to that too. And I think they will um, be tremendous out there talking about their lives and their hopes and their opportunities. And it has just been such a pleasure to talk with you about this, Roxanne, and, and such a wonderfully thoughtful and thought-provoking conversation. Yeah, Gigi, thanks. Really, thanks so much. And we'll see each other in Down East Maine. I'm very much looking forward <laughs> to that. That's great. Right. Take care. Take care, Roxanne. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. Produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.